They're back on the Football Outside the Box podcast, where we discuss the past, the present, and the future of football. We definitely got away with that one. Thank goodness for that three points. Very necessary three points in the bag. Boy, I was nervous as hell before this one, I'll tell you that. When we scored that first goal, I was like, all right, cool, we're we're waiting for something good. But then as the game went on, I just felt like Crystal Palace were coming back into it. We allowed them back into the game. And I think the way we allowed them back into the game was through two areas, especially in the second half. And those two areas was left wing and right wing. I think, especially down our left flank, Crystal Palace's right flank, Zinchenko, when the ball is clipped over the top and he's running towards our goal, you can tell that he struggles in those areas or on the one-on-one defending as well. Otherwise, I felt we were very solid defensively throughout the game as a team, as a unit. I thought Ben White, throughout the course of the game, handled Zaha expertly. Up until he got that yellow card, then I felt like Zaha kind of started to press onto him a bit. But that boy Saliba, oh my days. That's a gem. That is a gem. He is an incredible centre-back. Another player, Ramsdale, I felt was excellent in terms of his keeping. He made two great saves. But he gets complacent sometimes. What was up with that kick in the first half? I swear that went into the goal. I swear he gave away that goal. I was tripping. But once again, thank goodness for the three points. Big up Martinelli. Made up for his mistake for the first chance he missed. And Saka, big play by him. I felt like he struggled to get into the game, but... When he did for that chance, he made it count. So big up to him. Jesus, excellent work rate as well. And I think Crystal Palace can also give themselves a pat on the back for staying in the game as long as they did. They created a couple chances. They scared me with a couple long balls. There was one play in particular when I think Mteta ended up fouling Gabriel on the play. But I felt like once I saw that ball go out wide to Ayu, I was like, Jeez, he's going to cross this into him and he's going to cause trouble. But then I realized, Gabriel and Saliba, that duo, they give me this relaxing, calm feeling. Like, especially Saliba. Oh my days. Wow. What do you think? Yeah, I think I, I, I think Arsenal should have killed the game off in the first 15 to 20 minutes. Palace just couldn't couldn't handle it and then you know I would have if I were an Arsenal fan I would have been very vexed at Martinelli missing that I mean it, it's a sitter he has to score that at least hit the target but like I said he makes up for it from a, a very well worked uh, corner set piece routine it's it's something that we're used to seeing from Arsenal at this point in the second half Arsenal were pretty much in game management mode even in the later stages of the first half, you could tell that they were kind of dropping into their own shell. And this is something that we've talked about last year as well, where 
especially in away games, they go up by a goal to nil and they switch their style to more of a game management. Is that something you would like to see continue or like in today's game? I mean, Palace arguably should have scored that chance with, I think it was Eze. Palace threatened them the whole of second half until the goal went in, which was very much against the run of play. Do you think this is the right way to approach the games? You would ideally like to kill the, the opponent off and Arsenal, especially away from aren't necessarily doing that. I would say that it was less about us going into a game management mode because I felt like that happened more later throughout the game. I think Crystal Palace did well to keep us quiet. I think it's something that I even was mentioning during the game. I was saying we still need to create more chances. Although we're dominant, we dominate possession, we keep other teams quiet, they can't get the ball off of us and we keep getting in or keep pinning their whole team back as a unit, we are still not generating chances, which is a difference. There's a difference between dominating a game and there's a difference between creating chances. And I think that's an area that we needed to do better today. I'm not sure if it's just because it's an away day, crowd is against us, Crystal Palace typically play a physical game. As I did today, again, I felt Anderson was fouling Martinelli and Jesus quite consistently. And not all of them got called fouls, but he was playing quite rough. Him and Ayu as well. I think Ayu, the players were complaining about the number of fouls he gave away as well in like the first half. So it's that's the next challenge I want to see from Arsenal is can we create more chances now? I feel us imposing ourselves on the game as far as dominating possession looks very good. As far as our positional structure, we look very good. But now can we create dangerous chances that's going to keep the opposition scared and help us to create more goals? I mean, let's look back. How many clear-cut chances did Jesus get? To be fair, he did create a good one for Odegaard, which I don't know why the man didn't shoot. He decided to try cut it back. But talking about Jesus getting chances for himself. Well, and even that, he created himself by by pressing on, on the on the center back. I forget who it was. It might have been Gehi. Yeah, I think it was Gehi. Yeah, exactly. There you go. So looking on that, that's an area of... I don't want to say concern, but that's a, that's the next challenge for us. That's the next step for us to improve on. I think this is a pretty much a default choice, but I think my man of the match is going to be the young center back. I mean, I I found it funny how he was doing his own, almost like a LeBron James kind of show where he was going to announce his decision, which, I mean, let's face it, no defender really deserves that, you know? Boy, I don't know after this performance. This guy looking like a beast, I can't lie. I mean, we, we've, we've, known, we've known about his quality, but for him to do this at, at a tough away ground, two different types of uh, attackers in Zaha, who very skillful pace, he runs at you, uh, and as well as Mateta and Eduard to a certain extent, very physical strikers. 
I mean, couldn't have gotten much better for him, this debut. So I, I'm I'm sure you agree with my man of the match as well. 100,000% Saliba is my man of the match. The boy was solid. The boy was secure. When I talk about that comfort feeling you get from a centre-back, as a teammate, as a fan, as a manager, like you know, okay, he's defending. All right, cool. This is going to get dealt with. Very few players have that feel. Van Dyke being one of them. Ruben Diaz being one of them. And this boy Saliba, I feel like he has that in him. Nervy win, but we'll take the three points. On to the first match of Saturday. An extremely surprising result. A result that we definitely did not anticipate. And I'm sure if you watched the preview show, you would have known that we did not predict this at all. And to be honest, I don't know how many people predicted this, but if you did, great prediction. Liverpool tied 2 all with Fulham at Craven Cottage. Quite interesting. Fulham, impressive. Mitrovic with the brace. Back to his good form for Fulham, as we've seen throughout his Fulham career. Another surprising factor of this match, Liverpool deciding not to start their big money striker signing Darwin Nunes. Do you think that this came back to haunt them? Was this part of the reason why they couldn't see out the three points today? I wouldn't necessarily put it all down to Firmino starting, but he certainly contributed. Firmino had a terrible game. I mean, he's he's been out of form since what the past two seasons, and this is the thing with Jurgen Klopp. He has such faith in his players and he wants to keep giving them opportunities when it's when it's just not working. And we're we're seeing that again with Firmino. Darwin Nunes comes on within the first ten minutes he comes on, he scores. I think it was the equalizer. And overall, you would have to say Fulham deserved the least a point. You know, if we look back two seasons ago when Mitrovic and Fulham were in the Premier League. I think he was benched over Cavalero, I think it was, Ivan Cavalero, the winger. And we forget, but he scored 43 goals last season in the championship. Say say what you want about the quality of the championship. You know, players like Dwight Gill coming into mind. But scoring 43 in that league, one of the toughest leagues in the world, it's a big feat. And it looks like that has really matured his game. He was up against Van Dyke, the best center back in the world currently. And he was bullying him. So I'm not saying Van Dyke had a terrible game, but Mitrovic, I think he has really stepped up his game. He has really improved. And not just on goal scoring, but also his you know overall striker play, especially in the holdup. And I was really impressed with what Mitrovic did. And incidentally, he became the first player since Van Dyke joined Liverpool to dribble past the guy. And once that happened, I think it's a soft penalty, but a penalty given. The thing with Nunes, he he had the assist, of course, for Salah's goal, but it was almost an accidental assist. You see the way he runs. You see the way he kicks the ball. You see his touches. It's very awkward. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's 
it can be inconsistent. It looks awkward. And this assist, too, it was a ricochet from a defender's head. It fell to Nunes. I think he was, I'm pretty sure he was going for a goal, but he just miskicked it. And instead, it fell right to Salah, and Salah buries it. I think he gets into good areas. He's His movement is something that Liverpool don't necessarily have up top, especially. And that does make a big difference for Liverpool. But it, it it's just funny. I mean, he's going to score 20 goals and we're, we're not going to know, you know, how because his form just looks so odd. Yeah, I'd agree. But as we know, that's not necessarily the telling factor of quality in a player or not. We see many players who have quite awkward ways of playing and dribbling. Even Salah would put that down to, but they still are very effective on the pitch. Well, I mean, the thing is, Salah, he has... He, he his technique is very good, you know his touches are never, his touches always set set him up for the next move. You know that's what we see in in top quality players. I don't think Darwin Nunes has that touch, and we'll we'll touch on this later. But I don't think neither does Holland. But again, Salah, we talk about Nunes coming in for Liverpool, but Salah has remember two or three seasons ago he was simply just a goal scorer. He was oftentimes ghosting in games and he would just somehow emerge with a goal or an assist and people would praise him. But if you really look at him, you know, even in the community shield too, he's the one carrying this Liverpool team, you know, especially in attack. And I guess we'll see over the course of the season if Liverpool were right to choose Salah, choose, you know, choose to keep Salah over Mane. But so far, looks like Salah is reaching the levels of, I don't want to say hazard because they're very different types of players, but in terms of the effectiveness and impact on the game for Liverpool, it's it's constantly increasing for Salah. Yep, so we'll see if the decision to re-sign him on the three-year deal ends up being a good one. Heading over to... My North London rivals, Tottenham, they took on Southampton this weekend. And it started out as a massive scare for them, going 1-0 down. But they did eventually turn the game around to end up with a comfortable 4-1 victory. Do you ever think that the win was in doubt here? No, I think it was crucial that they responded quickly. I think Sessegnon's equalizer came nine minutes after the first goal. Remember, Tottenham did struggle last season against teams who sat back. But it's crucial that they turn the game around within the first 30 minutes of the game. And in the second half, I think it was more the same story. Tottenham pressing, but not much there in terms of clear-cut chances. But then a certain defender for Tottenham comes to rescue I know he plays for Southampton, but he might as well just say he, he was playing for Spurs. Mohamed Salisu. What was he doing? Yeah, I, I don't want to fault him too much. I mean, as a center, center half, your instinct is to try to your best to clear the ball. I, I guess he had no idea of knowing that no one was behind him. But I mean, it's, it's poor. Just poor clearance. And to really kick... kick to really kill the game off, 
Dejan Kulusevski. I want to give him my man of the match for this game. This guy was everywhere. Everything Tottenham did well, he was there. And what's what's really promising for Tottenham is that they scored four this game, and none of those were scored by Kane or Son. We know they rely heavily on those two. And this game, four goals, zero goals scored from those those two, the, the, the dynamic duo they have. This is the kind of game that Tottenham need to win more often. The games where you're not just being carried by those two, where, you know, the players like Kulosevsky, he has shown that last season, the second half of the last season. He can carry the team as well when Kane and Son maybe being marked out of the game or maybe not up at their best in certain games. I still think that Tottenham need a bit more creativity. If you look at all their goals, all of the goals came from the flanks. You look at their midfield options, there's no one that's necessarily a creative one. I know that Conte's system doesn't necessarily require a player who's sitting in a midfield two to be creative, but I think they're being linked with Madison. I don't know if they're going to be willing to pay that much for Madison, but it could be necessary. Yeah, I just don't think that they've been able to replace what they lost in Ericsson. He was always able to provide that creative spark at any moment, at any position that he took up on the field. And it would always be a dangerous creation. So if they could figure that side of it out, yeah, I agree. I think it would be a very dangerous piece added to the puzzle. Well, remember, they were in the race for Christian Eriksen until they pulled out within the first week of the negotiations. So maybe that's not the profile of player that they're looking for. Well, I think Eriksen is a different player today than he was when he was playing for Tottenham. Yes, he is. His athleticism is probably not up there anymore. Not that his athleticism was anywhere near amazing. But when you just focus on the creative type, the ones who can provide those passes to you know unlock the defense that are sitting deep. They don't have any of that right now. Yeah, that's true. So let's see. I mean, transfer window is still not done. They might be able to, to secure somebody. For my sake, hopefully not. But as we always say, we'll see. The final game of Saturday, Chelsea took on Everton. Chelsea were able to scrape by penalty by Jorginho. Surprisingly enough, he did not do his usual hop and skip, but proved to be just as effective as he usually is from the spot. I thought Chelsea were lucky with this one. I felt felt Everton created a lot of chances, decent amount of chances, got into some good areas. Um, I was impressed with their right back, Patterson. I thought he had a pretty good, sharp game. The game in general felt like these two teams were have been playing for a good amount of time. I felt like they looked sharp, they looked fit. At least for the most part. I thought Ali, that chance he had, poor, just poor. I, f- I feel he's just, he's really not up to his game anymore. 
maybe he's just in bad form, but he looks a shadow of the player that he was at Tottenham in his younger days. From a Chelsea perspective, I thought Sterling impressed. I liked the areas he took up. I thought he, he drove very well. Pretty sure it was him who won the penalty as well, if I'm not mistaken. But overall, I felt his ball carrying, some of the chances he was able to create. He played some great passes through as well. I thought Sterling had a good game, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, and like we said, Sterling is the only profile of a player who can run at defense on a consistent and a successful basis. Chelsea don't have that anywhere. And plus the, the movement and the runs he makes. But looking at the players that Chelsea are being linked with, there's a lot of talks for Fofana being talked about for 70 to 85 million pounds. This team to me doesn't scream that this team needs a 75 million pound defender. What this screams to me is this team needs a proper striker. And I know your stance on their striker situation that Havertz can run it for the whole season. I think this game pretty much shows it that he can't. Chelsea struggled. They need different types of profiles, especially in the striker position. You can't just rely on a, on a, on a midfield player who can run around. That's probably his best strength, his, his work rate. But I, I don't believe you can rely on that for, for the length of the whole season. Well, as I say with Havertz, it's not that I believe that he can handle the whole season just on his own. I do think he needs competition and somebody to rotate with. But I don't mind him being the number nine striker for Chelsea, even if he's a starting role. Let me rephrase the question. Havertz as the main number nine who starts 30 out of 38 games is not going to work. And this game showed it to me. Like I said, I just think he needs a bit of competition and rotation. It's not necessarily about... Like, for example, if I look at... I know I'm going back to Arsenal here, but Ramsdale, I felt he got complacent in the match. And that's because I feel like he knows that his starting place is cemented. So... It's not necessarily just about the rotation, even though I'm talking about rotation as an option. That level of competition brings the best out of you because you know that your position is not cemented. And I think that if Chelsea had more natural number nine options, I think you get more out of Havertz like that. I don't, I don't think it's all about rotation and competition. The players should... If you're not motivated to give your best every game without the presence of a competition or a rotation, you should not be playing for a club like Chelsea or any of the big clubs for that matter. The desire to win games, the desire to win trophies, the desire to do the best for your team should be enough to produce at whatever position you're playing in. And to be fair, Havertz is not being played at his main position that he grew up playing as a youth player that he was signed for. Yeah, we well, can always adjust positions and switch. We, we know we talk about players who have been starting out as a certain position, like Bale started as a left-back or moved to right-mid. And these things happen with players. It's not necessarily like 
you you start as his position, you're there full-time, done. Players can adapt and adjust. And systems can help that too. Especially if you have other players around who can who can drive as well, like Sterling now has come in. I think Sterling and Pulisic next to him could bring a lot out of him too. I just think it suits his style just as much. So... Let's see, one game is not the full telling story, as we know. But yes, from an overall Chelsea standpoint, I felt I felt in this one, for me, it was about Everton matching their energy and intensity. And I think that's where Chelsea struggled. I think Chelsea historically tend to struggle at Goodison. And again, first game of the season, performances can typically go out the window. Of course, you would want to bring out the best performance, but especially combined with the early start, three points is is king. It's crucial. Yep, it is. Speaking of three points being crucial, something that your team, Man United, could not manage to do this weekend. At home, to a weekend Brighton side, as we mentioned in the preview, what was going on? No answers to the midfield penetration. I know people are going to be quick to jump on the Maguire, Lissandro Martinez. I mean, it's all good. I'm not saying they had a world beater of a performance. But you put anybody back there. You put prime Cannavaro. You put prime Nesta back there. Even they will struggle. And this is a trend that we've seen since last year. And I'm not... Blaming this all on McTominay and Fred. Brighton so easily got out of pressure, got through our midfield. And it was oftentimes our back four exposed against their their wing backs and Danny Welbeck. It, this is not just all on the defense. Of course, the defenders could do better, but you're providing them with such bad hands that they're that they're bound to fail at some point. And there were warning signs in the in the Middle stages, the first half, and it resulted in a goal with Danny Mobile. He's he was making some great runs in behind every the whole game. I mean, what what can you do? Eriksson not up to it physically. He was getting outrun. He was losing the jewels in the midfield. Bruno, terrible game. I think a lot of fans give him a free pass because of what he's done when he first came in, but. Just a terrible game all around. And I think the second goal for Brighton, you know, shades of luck. But you have to follow your your runners into the box, which Fred did, but only half-assed it. He wasn't even tracking Pascal Gross. I, I don't know what the solution is. I mean, you talk about Frankie de Jong coming in, I think with the plans of using him in, in that sole pivot role. The midfield needs help. Simple as. Midfield is being overrun. And hence, making all other areas of the game worse. Especially the defenders. Okay, you speak a lot about the midfield. McTominay, I know, was on the end of a lot of criticism. I would like to point out a different area of the pitch as well. Rashford came on and I think he had two... Pretty clear-cut chances that he really should have put away. 
What's going on with him? This is a player who started off his career so brightly from a young age, arguably one of the most promising young players coming up, was tipped to be the next Ronaldo, all of this stuff. His finishing seems out of sorts. Is there any way back for him? Of course there is way back for him. I don't necessarily think he was ever the greatest finisher. He, even when he first burst onto the scene, he has, I mean, I don't know the full-on answer to this. If I knew, I'll be coaching him right now. But he, it's no, you can't deny that he has been miscoached. Three coaches or four coaches he's had under, he made his debut under Louis van Gaal. Louis van Gaal put him in as a striker, which he was full of running, full of energy when he first came onto the scenes. And then Rashford got moved out to the wings by Jose Mourinho. Same thing happened to Martial as well. Solskjaer comes in. He seems to have rejuvenated his career a little bit, where he was actually performing. He was scoring double-digit goals for two, three seasons in a row. And then since last season or two seasons ago, his his performance levels have dropped even when he was scoring the goals. It's all about his decision-making for me. He always makes the same types of runs. He always tries to do the same types of play. And I think the defenders have caught on to that by now. I mean, we, we have, what, six, seven years of data. I mean, not just even data, just watching him play and playing against him. The guy needs a proper coach to direct him, especially what to do in certain situations. Don't let him use his brain because his brain is fixated on one thing. It sounds harsh when I tell him to not use his brain, but that's what he needs to do. These players, sometimes they just need to be drilled into them, almost like a second nature to tell them in this situation, you need to do this. In that situation, you need to do that. And he hasn't had that. And hopefully with this new coach who is supposed to be very methodical, very detail-oriented, can point that out and spot that and help guide Rashford in that way. Where We're not relying on him to make his decisions. We're making, or the situation is making decisions for him. And I think that will benefit him. Eric Ten Hag, thoughts on him so far? Uh, one game, um, too early. But I, I did think that he had to put on the subs a lot earlier. In the second half, I thought he was going to make the subs right away at halftime, but he didn't. We all knew Brighton were going to go back into their shell and try to see out the game. And Brighton let us play our game. You know, in the second half, it was better, but only because Brighton didn't press. Brighton let us have the ball. Brighton let us play. And even then, we still struggled. Only thing that I want to say is, I'm only saying this because I've heard this from the Dutch League fans, that his in-game reactions, in-game substitutions can be a tad bit late or delayed. And I think we saw that. The first sub was made Ronaldo for, I think it was Fred, in the 52nd or 53rd minute. That should have been done at halftime. And the, and the last one was, or sorry, the second one was Donny van der Beek for McTominay in the 78th minute. Donny van der Beek is the kind of player who should thrive in this situation where the teams are sitting back. He can run into those spaces that I don't think any other players on our team have that ability. He can run to the run to the space, create that extra space that doesn't exist. And 
I don't know why he waited till the 78th minute to put him on. What do you expect him to do for the, you know, 10, 15 minutes? Yeah, a lot of a lot of things to look at for Ten Hag. Back to the drawing board for him. And finally, our final match of the weekend, Erling Haaland gets his brace to start off his City career in style against West Ham United. Does he continue in this fashion? Well, which is a bit of a disappointment because every single big league that he made his debut in, he scored a hat trick. And I think Pep took him off on a brace. I don't know why he could have kept him on to go for a hat trick. I think City had it in the bag anyway. Erling Haaland, his second goal, I mean the first goal was a penalty, so we don't there's not much to look at. The second goal is what makes him a freak. For a guy so tall, so quick, so fast in making those runs. And you combine that with Kevin De Bruyne, that pass was exquisite and that finish wasn't wasn't that bad either i'm i'm i think we're going to see this more often knowing that city score is counterintuitive kind of but they do score a lot of goals on on breakaways and what better guy suited for that to be on the end of those passes or those crosses erling holland but i do want to point out as well that although his first goal was a penalty it was a penalty that he won from quite a similar situation to what you're describing. Running in behind, penetrating through ball, nicks it right before the keeper and wins the penalty. Yeah, and I think the big thing is that City have probably found a reliable penalty taker. I don't know what his penalty record is or was at Dortmund, but now that City had uh, settled with Mahrez as a, as a taker, now remember, in the same game last year, he missed. He missed the chance to win the game for City and really affirm their grip on the title. And I think Holland coming in, I think he could be the best penalty taker for City and really settle those nerves and settle those worries away. I don't know if he, he will continue to take them, but I guess that's one thing that we can keep an eye on as well. And if he does take that, he could score 30. Yeah, it will be good for his confidence and also for City in general because they did struggle with the penalties recently. So it is good to find a confirmed, identified penalty taker. Was there any chance for West Ham in this one at all, you felt? I know that City lined up in a very interesting fashion when they had the ball. Cancelo and Walker tucked inside as almost midfielders leaving a lot of space out wide on the wings. Do you think that there was something potential in that for West Ham to be able to maybe counter? I know that they were trying to nick the ball in high areas when City were trying to possess the ball in their own half. And that's one thing that I kind of don't really like about City's style is that, yes, although they have possession, it's not necessarily in attacking areas. Do you think that that is something that other teams in the future may be looking out for? Because it's not like West Ham were just completely out the game. They did have a, f a couple of chances that they were able to, to get on and definitely some chances to nick the ball high up the field. What do you think?
could they get exposed from that style? Yeah, I mean, hundred percent. It's tail as good as gold, you know. City getting countered on the breakaway, and plus we have to mention that they, they've lost more depth on on the flanks. They don't. They lost Sinchenko. I think they're bringing in the Sergio Gomez guy from Anderlecht, maybe or somewhere in Belgium. And I mean, imagine if Kyle Walker gets injured. And he hasn't stayed injury-free for a long time. For a lot of seasons, I mean. And same with Cancelo. Cancelo has missed some game time as well. City, for whatever reason, they rely a lot on their fullbacks. Even though they have so much talent up up the field. And there's they play such integral parts in their game. And again, City, their only weakness, I guess, this season is, is depth. They've considerably gotten weaker for me. And if Bernardo Silva leaves, that's that's even worse. I say worse because I want City to win the title. And that's not necessarily good news for me. They have to really manage the workload of those fullbacks for me. Kyle Walker's getting up there in age as well. Let's see. Let's see if City get exposed like that. Hopefully, for their sake, they sign someone before the transfer window closes, just in case those injuries that you're describing does eventually happen. But as for game week one, that is all the time we have for this game week. Thanks for tuning into the review show. Remember to like us on whatever platform you're listening to us on, Spotify, Apple. Just click the subscribe button. Like us on the Facebook page as well. The link is in the description. And let us know your thoughts on today's episode on our Facebook page. Do you agree with our views? Do you disagree with anything that we've said? Let us know. We always welcome any sort of discussions that you guys want to bring up. Also, don't forget to turn on your notifications. That will be it for today's episode. Thank you for tuning in as always. Thank you very much. And peace out.